0: Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. This is good, isn't he? I have these moments sometimes where when you get in those worship moments and then everything else kind of falls away as distractions, that totally happened to me this morning. I'm like, oh yeah, I have to preach a message. I should probably uh, like go up on stage. Um, Anyways, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter five. Uh, We're going to be wrapping up our preaching series in the Beatitudes this morning. But before we get to there, uh, I have a confession to make to you this morning and the confession is this the inside of my car is never clean Uh, like no no joke like the inside of my car is never clean it's never ever ever clean Uh, it is always messy I think I lost oh nope we're back almost lost the remote there Cool, we're back. Um, Anyways, where was I? My car. Uh, My car is never clean. Uh, You can always find something dirty in my car. Uh, Whether it's like old coffee cups, right, that are just nasty. have been there for like a week where the coffee's starting to mold. Uh, I have like old napkins, probably some that have been used. Uh, I have old gas receipts that just pile up. Uh, I have, uh, you know, the the paper you get from the, the bendy straws? um like from the fast food place i just have a bunch of those little papers lying around everywhere sunflower seeds i'm a i love sunflower seeds so those are just the shells are everywhere over my car um i even have this stain in the back seat of my car i don't know what it is i don't know where it came from it's been there for forever i'm convinced that not even the tears of mr clean can get this thing out of my car uh it is there and it is there to stay And then throw on top of that the mess that my kids create in the car, right? Uh, I have like 50 toys in my car, a bunch of crayons, like 15,000 crumbs of goldfish just scattered everywhere. And then my kids, I swear they're out to get me. They strategically do this, I'm convinced. There's always random globs of food goo that my hands always seem to find strategically placed because I think my kids know where I'm going to like unbuckle them and everything and my hands just get covered with nastiness that I have no clue what it is. Um, The inside of my car is just gross. Uh... And if I'm honest, I hate cleaning the inside of my car. It's the worst. You've got to, like, bend down in there, get in there, resist the temptation of throwing all your kids' toys away and considering that trash. Um, and then once you get everything cleaned out and separated, you've got to vacuum, right? But then you realize you didn't do a good job cleaning because there's still stuff under the seats, there's still stuff in the car doors, there's stuff smushed into the seats, and you're, like, trying to vacuum that up. Uh, and then you try to get the stain out of the back seat of your car for, like, the 50th time, and it never works. Uh, I hate cleaning the inside of my car. In fact, I hate it so much that I made a bet with my wife uh, that if I picked a better bracket than her in the NCAA basketball tournament, uh, then my prize was she had to clean my car. Uh, I totally am losing right now. So, uh, But for the past uh, nine months, I've gotten to enjoy a garage for like the first time since high school. And it's been awesome. Uh, you just drive your car right in there, and it's protected from the elements, right, for most of the day. So, like, my car will go huge stretches of time where the outside of it, I don't need to clean it. It looks awesome. Uh, And the outside, let's just be honest, I I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but I I love, well, I know I'm weird, but I love to clean the outside of my car. It's way fun. You either get two options. You get to go to the the self-service station where you get to use the high-pressure wash, right, which, let's just be honest, that's the adult version of a super soaker, uh, that thing is just cool. Uh, I love to clean my car with that thing. And then, or, or if you want the other option, it's the 21st century. You can drive your car without ever getting out through this huge contraption machine with brushes and soap and spraying, and it'll clean your car for you, and you don't even need to get out of your seat. Uh, it's way cool. I love cleaning the outside of the car. Well, why do I tell you about cleaning my car here this morning? Uh, I do it for two reasons. One. I actually really need to clean my car, and this is a good reminder for me. Uh, And two is because on a serious note, I believe that this is how many of us treat the Christian life. I think many of us treat the Christian life the way in which we treat my car. Some of us here this morning are like my car. We look awesome on the outside. We love to clean the outside because it's fun and easy. But on the inside, we're gross. We're nasty. We're dirty. And we hate cleaning the inside because it's hard. In other words, how many of us obey God and all of our actions and all of the places that people see because that's easy to fool other people? But when it comes to the inside of our lives and our desires, our thoughts, our will, and the places that people don't see, Well, we're constantly disobeying, and that's a lot harder to fool God. How many of us think that if we just keep ourselves from the world, if if we just park our lives in the garage, like my car is in the garage and is protected, if we can just protect ourselves from the world, if we can just wall ourselves off from all the elements and all of the influences of evil out there in the world, if we can just do that, then we're good. But we fail to realize that all of the necessary ingredients for evil that exists out there actually exist right here inside our own hearts. See, Jesus, Jesus didn't come just to clean up the outside of your life and then give you a bunch of principles to live by. No, Jesus came to clean up the inside and the outside, the outside and the inside because he wants to give you himself so that he can come and live and take up residence in you. And don't make this a, a conflict. Don't make this a conflict between the inside and the outside, right? Like some of you guys might have an opposite problem of me where the inside of your car just looks immaculate, but the outside of your car, ah, eh, not so much, right? And, and this is similar to what we do in Christianity where we make Christianity all about what we believe on the inside, but then we just ignore how we're supposed to live. Francis Chan is a pastor. He's got this great story where he talks about this kid playing Simon Says, except the kid's not doing the motions, right? And so the leader notices this, and he goes over to the kid, and he's like, hey, why aren't you playing Simon Says? Because you're not doing any of the motions. And the kid says, oh, well, I am playing Simon Says. I'm doing all the motions in my heart. Right? That doesn't work with Simon Says. (laughs) Gracious. Uh, That that doesn't work with Simon Says. Why do we think that that's going to work with the Christian life? So we play this game, right? And we're like, we go over here into this side and we start talking about how Christianity is all about a relationship and we rail against the self-righteousness and anybody who starts talking about obedience, well, suddenly they're just legalistic, right? And we do that and there's a time and a place for that. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I think if we were just honest, that's just a guise. That's a front. That's a distraction. It's a distraction because it's so much easier to go over here and say, oh, Christianity's a relationship The self-righteous. And anybody who talks about obedience is legalistic. It's easier to do that than it is to actually come over here and obey God. I know this game because I play this game. I play this game. And I'm very good at this game. See, the Christian life, it's not about trying to clean up the outside of your life and ignoring the inside. Nor is it about downplaying obedience for the sake of believing the right things on the inside. Hear me on this. The Christian life is about Jesus. The Christian life is about Jesus. It's about how Jesus wants to come and clean all of who we are, not just the outside, not just the inside. He wants to clean all of who we are, both the inside and inside. The outside. And this is where our verse comes into play here this morning. Matthew 5.8. It's what this is all about. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you're in Matthew 5. This is a short verse for us this morning. It'll be on the screen as well, but I want you to view it in your Bible so you know that I'm not up here making up scripture this morning. It's actually in the scripture. Uh, Matthew 5.8 says this: Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's so short you can memorize it. I'll need you to probably run my slides back there. This whole thing, the internet is just caving on me up here. Um, it's so short you can memorize that, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The first word that we see in that verse is the word blessed. The word Blessed. Now, the word blessed is where we actually get our word beatitude from. It's why this section of verses is called the Beatitudes. It's why we called our series the Beatitudes. Because the word beatitude actually means supreme blessedness or like super blessedness, right? Uh, that, that's what that, and because every verse starts with blessed, that, that's why we get uh, this set of verses uh, dubbed the name Beatitudes. Now, I don't want to belabor this point because... Uh, if you've been with us for a while, Doug has done a really good job talking about what the word blessed means. And so I don't want to go on a huge uh, rabbit trail here talking about what the, the word blessed means. But I do want to point this out. It's, it's really, really, really important to know that the Beatitudes are not commands. They're declarations. They're not commands They are declarations. That's really important, and I'm not against commands because what's actually going to happen, the Beatitudes is an intro to Jesus' greatest sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount actually has 66 commands in it. So the commands are coming. But it's just really important to know that when Jesus kicks off his sermon, he doesn't kick it off with commands. The commands are coming, but he kicks it off with Declarations, and that's what the Beatitudes are. Sam Storms uh, is a author and pastor that I really like, uh, and he has this quote. He says, "Blessedness is primarily a declaration of what God thinks about us. To be blessed thus means to be congratulated in a deeply religious sense. The emphasis is more on divine approval." Than on human feeling. Nothing should make us happier than to realize what God approves. In other words, when Jesus kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, he kicks it off with a bunch of congratulations, right? He's saying congratulations to these kinds of people. Why? Because these are the kinds of people that get God's approval, these are the kinds of people that get access to God's kingdom. These are the kinds of people that embody what the Beatitudes are talking about. Therefore, God gives them, Jesus in his sermon gives them, a congratulations. So, the crucial question for us then to answer is, how do we get that congratulations? How do we become a people that can embody the Beatitudes? How can we get access to God's kingdom? How do we get God's approval? Well, for that, you can't look at the Beatitudes, you've got to see what comes before the Beatitudes. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not the first thing Jesus preaches in his ministry. To see the first thing that Jesus preaches in his ministry, you've got to go back a chapter. So if you're in Matthew 4, flip over to Matthew, or if you're in Matthew 5, I'm sorry, flip over to Matthew 4. Matthew 4, 17. It says this, From that time... So, the time meaning Jesus has just been tempted, he just began his ministry. This is the very first thing that he is going to preach. And Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand because Jesus is in their midst. Jesus is king therefore the kingdom is at hand but the first message he preaches and this is so important for us to get the first message that christ preaches is repentance repentance is the key to understanding all of the sermon on the mount it's the key to understanding the beatitudes because we will never be a people that embody the beatitudes without repentance we're never going to be a people that embody the beatitudes without repentance Repentance. We're never going to get entrance into God's kingdom without repentance. We're never going to get God's approval without first admitting that there's nothing we could do to get God's approval. That's why Jesus had to come, to secure God's approval for us. Admitting that truth and submitting your life to it is the first step in repentance. And repentance is basically coming to Jesus and it's saying, I surrender. I don't have what it takes to clean up the outside or the inside of my life. Would you come and would you make the inside and the outside clean? That's what repentance means. And if you then examine the Beatitudes, they're all connected back to this issue of repentance. They're all connected back to the issue of repentance. A repentant person recognizes they are poor in spirit. Doug translated that uh, to be broken. You can't repent unless you recognize that you are broken. A repentant person admits that they're broken. They admit, hey, I I don't have what it takes. I'm flawed. I'm spiritually bankrupt before God, meaning that not even does sin actually put me in debt to God, but even if I do a bunch of good works, it won't get me out of debt. It's not enough. I need a bigger payment. A repentant person mourns over sin. And not just their own sin, but they mourn over sin, just what it's done to this world and the havoc that it's wreaked over our world. Things like bitterness, things like envy, things like strife, things like malice, things like murder, hate, death. All of these things are an overflow of what sin has done to this world and we mourn over that because it's not the way it was supposed to be. And when we get affected by sin, we don't stuff that down we get it out in the open, as Doug talked about. We throw it up. A repentant person is meek. Matt talked about this when he preached. A meek person doesn't need to defend themselves. A meek person doesn't need to just not defend themselves to other people. They don't even need to defend themselves to themselves. Because Jesus makes the defense for them. You can't, you can't come to that conclusion or that position without repentance. Repentance. A repentant person hungers and thirsts for righteousness because once they've tasted Jesus, there's nothing better. Remember Doug talked about this last week, how he had a problem with the Craigslist, right? Looking for VW bugs and whatnot, right? For Doug, Jesus needed to be better than Craigslist. For you, what does Jesus need to be better than this morning? And finally this morning, we see that a repentant person is pure in heart. A repentant, you can't get purity of heart without repentance. So, the next word I want to look at this morning is the word pure. In Matthew 5.8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure? What does it mean to be pure? What does purity mean? See, I think when most people hear the word purity, they immediately go to the issue of sexual purity, right? And, and that's not wrong. It's just that purity is so much more involved than that. Because you can be impure in how you deal with success. You can be impure in how you deal with your motives. You can be impure in how you deal with your money. You can be impure in how you deal with your time. You can be impure in the words that you say. You can be impure in a lot of things. But since I brought up the issue of sex, let's use sex or sexuality so that we can understand purity better. When people think of sexual purity, I think one of the uh, pragmatic or outworkings of that when they hear that is don't have sex outside of marriage. When when people hear sexual purity, I think they usually think of or they would want to define that as don't have sex outside of marriage. And that's true. That's a true statement. But notice that that's all concerned with the outward stuff. It's an outward action not to have sex outside of marriage. What's going on on the inside? Because Jesus says something very revealing later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 28. He says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. See, Jesus isn't just concerned with the outside. He's also concerned with the inside. He's concerned with both. How many of us fail to live up to that verse? How many of us have taken lust into our bedrooms, married or not? How many of us are addicted to pornography? Look at the statistics, it runs rampant in our culture. How many of us have justified looking at pornography? How many of us have turned sex into an idol? How many of us have made something that God created to be good, but yet we go to it and we expect it to satisfy us in only the way that God can? We put God-like demands on it. We think, oh, I could never live a life without having sex. Really? Well, then sex has become an idol for you. Why don't we try this one on for size? How many of us married folk have reduced purity to just simply, oh, well, don't have sex before marriage? That's what purity means. So, sex inside of marriage is somehow impure? I don't see that in Scripture. Purity isn't just not having sex, it's having sex in its proper context. So, having sex inside of marriage is pure, according to the Scriptures. How many of us married folk are maybe sexually pure? Maybe we've got that thing nailed. But when it comes to pure devotion to our spouse's well-being, well, then we're lacking. We're not quite there. Because sex is just simply a picture of our commitment to our wives. We're, We're saying, I give you everything and all of who I am. I'm willing to serve you. So if you're having sex inside the bedroom, but you're not serving your spouse over here and other things, you're actually still failing in sexual purity. The word pure literally means clean. That's what it means. The word literally means clean. That's what purity means. So if I were to, my car, it was either clean or it wasn't, right? If I were to tell you that my car was clean, but the inside or the outside wasn't clean, would I be entirely honest with you? Would I be truthful with you? No. And therein lies the essence or core of purity, Purity means, in a biblical sense, the deeper meaning means is honesty. The core or essence of purity is honesty. Because according to the Bible, to be an honest person means I'm not trying to deceive God or anyone else about who I really am. What you see is what you get. I'm sincere. I am genuine in who I am. My record is clean or clear. Because no one has reason to doubt my loyalty or devotion to God because I have integrity. That is the core or essence of biblical purity. And now we have a problem, don't we? Because if I were to take all the files off the shelves of every single person's sexual purity in here, if all of your sexual purity was reduced to a file and I were to pull that off the shelf and I were to lay that bare here this morning for everyone to see, I don't think a one of us has a clean or clear record. Not according to Jesus' standard. There's dirt on all of our records. There's dirt on all of our records because people would then have reason to doubt our loyalty and submission and devotion to god because we may want god yeah i want god but we also want our sexual sin too we're not really willing to give that up people have reason to doubt our integrity because before other christians will say oh yeah i'm good everything's fine i don't struggle with this but yet over here in the places that people don't see yeah we actually really are struggling with it and we're not honest See, sin actually taints us because sin, you and I were not created for it. So to add that mixture into our lives doesn't just ruin us a little bit. It destroys the very purpose for which we were created. I bought a lawnmower last year and I made the mistake of buying the wrong oil for that lawnmower And when I put that oil in the lawnmower and I started going down the lawn thinking, oh, this is great, and then all of a sudden white smoke started filling up my entire yard, right? Uh, and, And my machine almost broke because it wasn't created for that oil. You and I were not created for sin. And so to add sin as a mixture into our lives, it doesn't just ruin us a little bit, it actually ruins the very purpose for which we were created. We have a stain not just on the outside of us, but also on the inside of us as well. Flip over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, starting in verse 23. These are some of the harshest words Jesus ever gave, ever, I think. It says this Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, I want you to see what Jesus is about ready to say next because it's important. These you ought to have done. Meaning, Jesus isn't just only concerned about the inside and not concerned about the outside. Don't play that game. Jesus is concerned with the inside and the outside. He's concerned with both here when he's talking to the Pharisees. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Whoa. Right, Jesus is laying it down thick because there's not just a problem with the outside, there's also a problem with the inside. And it's really easy to read ourselves into these verses and say, yeah, I, I struggle with that. Because I know when I look at my past and the sexual sin that's in my past, I know I'm looking at this and I know I'm not pure. I know I'm not pure, both on the inside and the outside. But church, you've got to hear me on this. You've got to listen to this. Jesus didn't come to shame you and your sexual sin. Jesus came to purify your sexual sin by overcoming it on the cross. Let me repeat that. Jesus didn't come to shame you with your sexual sin. He came to purify your sexual sin by overcoming it on the cross. If that's true, then why do we wallow around in our sexual sin like, oh, nothing can overcome this, when Jesus already overcame it on the cross? See, there's these two lies that I think have subtly worked their way into Christian circles. One is this, well, once you ruin your sexual purity, well, then you're done. That's it, you can't ever get your sexual purity back. What? What? Do we not believe in the majesty and glorious power of grace? That grace doesn't just get rid of your sexual sin, but it actually gives you Jesus Christ's own sexual purity. Is Jesus Christ only 99.9% sexually pure? Or is he all the way sexually pure? Do we not believe that when Jesus looks at, or when God looks at you, that He sees jesus own sexual purity, i don 't care what your past was, i don 't care what your present circumstances are. i don 't care what your future is. When God looks at you, he sees a pure sexuality because it 's christ 's own pure sexuality that dwells within you. See, Jesus didn't come just to make you a little bit cleaner than you were before. You're not a recycling project to God. The Bible actually goes so far as to say that you're a whole new creation. You're something else entirely. A lot of us treat the Christian life as if it's a horse race. And, oh, I'm a horse race and, and I was this bad horse and I'm, I'm drowning out over here. But God's going to somehow turn me into sea biscuit so that I can start winning races. No, God's not going to turn you into sea biscuit. He's going to turn you into Pegasus. You're something else entirely different. You're a whole new creation. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse. That word cleanse in the Greek is the same word for pure. Same word, cleanse, clean. Remember, pure means clean. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. You want to know what the Greek word is for all? It's all. It's everything. Jesus came to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we believe that verse? Do we? Or do we neuter that verse? Ah, well, yeah, that's true, but let's put some parameters on this because I'm not comfortable with that. You don't know my past. You don't know the things I've done. Jesus is just putting up with us until we get to heaven. No, Jesus is making us whole because he's bringing heaven to us. Lie number two is this. Well, purity just isn't possible. Have you seen the world we live in? You can't be pure. You can't do that. That's impossible. And even when you lose your sexual purity, which we've already proven isn't true if you are in Christ, even when you lose your sexual purity, well, then if you try and try and try, you're 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 always going to be dealing with sin. You're always going to be dealing with this sexual sin. So you can't really get out of it. So why even try? You're always going to deal with sin. I want to push back against this defeatist mentality. Did we not just sing a song about the victory of Jesus? Then why do we walk around in the Christian life as if it doesn't exist? I take issue with this defeatist mentality. There's a great book. I encourage you guys to read it. It's called The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. And he has this quote. He has a lot of good quotes. Um, But this quote really stuck out to me uh, this week. He says this, "'The Bible is realistic about holiness.'" Don't think that all this glorious talk about dying to sin and living to God means there is no struggle anymore or that sin will never show up in the believer's life. The Christian life still entails obedience. It still involves a fight. But, but, but it's a fight we will win. You have the spirit of Christ in your corner, rubbing your shoulders, holding the bucket, putting his arm around you and saying before the next round with sin, you're going to knock him out, kid. Sin may get in some good jabs, it may clean your clock once in a while. it may bring you to your knees, but if you are in Christ, it will never knock you out. You are no longer a slave, but free. Sin has no dominion over you, it can't. It won't. A new king sits on the throne. you serve a different master. You salute a different Lord. Church, you will not always deal with sin. Let me say that again. You will not always deal with sin. There is a day coming in which Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to claim his people. He's going to claim the people that he congratulated, the people that embodied the Beatitudes, the people that have his approval, the people that get access to his kingdom. He's going to come back to claim them. And if you're in that group of people, guess what? On that day, the last drop of impurity is going to be expunged from you. And the work of Christ, both on the inside and on the outside of you, will become a full reality and you will know complete purity. If you have repented in, to Christ, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in him, if you've trusted with him, I got news for you. That is a legit day on the calendar. I don't know what that day is going to be. Maybe it's May 4th. Maybe it's November 2nd. I don't know what day that's going to be, but it's going to be a real day in history so why are we not acting like it why aren't we preparing to receive that day this leads me to talk about the third word the third word is heart the heart is not just simply the place where you have feelings a lot of us want to reduce oh the heart is where i feel well in the bible it means a whole lot more than that Uh, in the bible The word heart, especially in the New Testament, this gets really fleshed out. Uh, The word heart could actually be described as maybe the core or the personality of a person. It's it's their whole personality. It's the thoughts. It's the desires. It's the motives. It's the will that does. It's the reason why you do what you do. The reason you do what you do is because of your heart. That's how the Bible, especially in the New Testament, talks about the word heart. So Matthew 5.8 lives or dies based on this word heart because I believe it actually is kind of pointing or foreshadowing the core theme of the Sermon on the Mount. If I were to sum up the core theme or the core message of the Sermon on the Mount, I would do it this way. Jesus doesn't just want a little bit of you. Jesus doesn't just want 99.9% of you. Jesus doesn't just want the outside of you. Jesus doesn't just want the inside of you. Jesus wants all of you. He wants the whole kit and caboodle. He wants everything that you are. And the reason the heart becomes so important then is because if all of who you are can be summed up in the heart, then Jesus is after your heart. Jesus is after your heart because he's after all of who you are. Ezekiel 36 25 through 27, uh, it says it better than I can. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Remember this word cleanse or clean means pure. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I don't know, growing up in the church, I heard, how many of you guys have heard this verse from Ezekiel? It's, it can be a somewhat of a common verse that, that's talked about a lot. Um, and, and me growing up in the church, this was a verse that I heard a lot. And what was interesting is like I'd always hear this verse, and this might have just been me being a kid and super distracted, but I always missed this last part or just it either never got said or i missed it. In the last part, let me repeat that. And i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If i'm honest here this morning in the darkest places of my heart, i struggle with that verse. I struggle with that verse because if I were to be brutally honest with you, I doubt that verse's reality in my own life. Where are you, Holy Spirit, causing me to walk out in obedience? Where are you, Holy Spirit, in my heart, causing me to obey your rules and follow you? I, I, I struggle with that verse. I doubt it's Reality in my life. And the reason I doubt its reality in my life is because I'm constantly struggling with sin. It just seems like sin is always rearing its ugly head in my face. I'm constantly just going through this cycle sometimes, it feels like, where I just have sin after sin after sin. When sin rears its ugly head again, and my pride kicks in, and I feel like I got to defend myself, and I feel like I got to go into a conversation blowing people out of the water and using my oratory skills to just defend and make myself look awesome and show off how much I know. It's really just pride. Or when sin rears its ugly head and I justify my little pet peeve sins because, oh, they're, they're not as bad as that really bad stuff. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not, like, getting wasted. I'm not doing any of that stuff. So I go over here and I justify it again. Or when sin rears its ugly head again and I discipline my kid out of inconvenience rather than love and I've done it again. Or when I, uh, sin rears its ugly head and I escape into these things like hobbies and entertainment and sports rather than escaping the world so that I can just be with Jesus. And it just seems like sin is constantly in my face. It's constantly up in my grill, if you will. When sin happens again and again and again and again, I can't help but wonder as I pray, and this is a little insight into my prayer life. I can't help but wonder as I pray, God, am I making any progress? Am I making any progress? Because it seems, it seems like my life is just constantly in this revolving door and this cycle of sin it seems like I just keep getting stuck in this rut and the wheel is spinning and I'm not going anywhere. It seems like every time I give my heart to you, and I've given my heart to you so many times, God, it seems like every time I do that, I want to take it back. And I want to go live a different way than the way that you have called me. It just seems like I'm getting nowhere. It seems like following Jesus is nothing more than a pipe dream. It just sounds good on paper, but in real life, no. And if I'm really honest, and this is in one of my prayer journals, it seems like purity of heart is about as foolish as a man beating the ocean and expecting to get pure water. I feel like pursuing the purity of heart is about as foolish as a man trying to beat the ocean and expecting pure water. That's my prayer. And when I'm done, oftentimes God's like, are you finished? And the word speaks to me. And I'm reminded of Hebrews 10, 22 through 23. And I speak this verse and its truths to my heart. So if you've got your Bible, slip over there. I want you to see this. Hebrews 10, 22 through 23. Hebrews ten twenty two through 23 says this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised, he who promised, is faithful. He's faithful. I speak this truth in these verses to my heart when it seems like I just want to give up. I just want to jettison this whole Jesus thing and I just want to go do what I want to do. When those days come upon me, I go to this verse and I speak its truth to my heart and I go before God one more time. I draw near to him and I reach out and I grasp my confession in the gospel confident not because of my own faith i'm coming with doubts and messed upness both on the inside and on the outside i reach out confident grasping my hope in the gospel because he who promised is faithful he who promised is faithful and it's at this place it's at this place that i get to through the work of the holy spirit where i find the endurance to keep going I find the endurance to put forth effort. I find the endurance to keep striving. I find the endurance to try again to follow God's rules. See, somewhere along the line in Christian circles, these words effort and striving and trying somehow got, well, those are bad words. Let's get rid of those words. Really? Because striving and effort are in the Bible. They're both there. Go read 1 Peter and Hebrews. It's, it's whose strength are we using when we put forth our effort? Where do we get the strength when we strive? Where do we get the strength when we try? It's right here. He who promised is faithful. Okay, God, I'm going to get up again, and I'm going to try one more day. I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to trust that Jesus who lives inside of me, who began this work, is going to complete it. That's going to look all weird and crazy and not linear, But he who promised is faithful. And I try again. One day I'll be with God and I'll see him face to face because the inside and the outside of me is gonna be completely pure. That's the day that I'm working towards. That's the day that I wanna see. The last part of Matthew 5, 8 talks about seeing God. Seeing God. What does it mean to see God? This is the promise that's made to those that are Pure in heart they are going to get to see God how many of us this morning that's a promise that we actually want how many for us this morning seeing God is really a good promise to us or how about for some of us that promises eh, okay you got anything else God you know I feel like that's sometimes how we treat him with his promises But is there anything better than getting God face-to-face to to see him? Out of all the things you could look at in the world is beholding God face-to-face what you value and desire above all else. Because I know for me, if I'm honest, it's not always what I value above all else. We live in Colorado, for crying out loud. Colorado is beautiful. There's a reason this place is named God's country. It's springtime, right? So I love Palisade at this time of the year because we get to see the beautiful pink that blooms in the peach trees, right? I love the monument when the sun sets on a clear day and you just get that purple and that orange and that yellow. Or my other favorite thing with the monument is when the fog rolls in and you get to see the definition of the monument. I love that. I love it when snow covers the book cliffs. Other than that, I hate the book cliffs. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, bu- the book cliffs look beautiful when there's snow on them. Uh I love this state. Go to any, go to any top of the 14ers uh, in our state, and you tell me that view isn't just majestic. Uh, I, one of my favorite hikes is Hanging Lakes. One of my favorite places to go to is Uray. Some of you guys love Telluride. I want to get there. I heard that place is beautiful. Uh, the Rocky Mountain National Park. I went there a couple years ago. Unbelievable views there, right? Uh, The Garden of the Gods, another beautiful place over in Colorado Springs. Do I need to go on? Do we not live in an unbelievably beautiful state? There are countless scenes in Colorado that are just absolutely beautiful to look at. And yet I can't help but wonder, when we're looking at the majesty of our state and its beauty and we get that awe in our eyes, do we get that same awe when we look at the majesty and beauty of God? Do we? Do we? And some of you might want to say, well, John, that's not fair. I've never seen God. I don't know what he looks like. That's an unfair comparison. How am I supposed to compare the beauty of Colorado to God when I've never seen God? Well, I want to press here a little bit and say that you have seen God. You have seen God. Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who is saying that verse? You can answer this question. Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus. God, do you not sense the irony of this verse? Jesus is saying, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." I could totally see Jesus just whispering, "And you're looking at him, right?" <laughs> because you are the crowd and the disciples who are listening were looking right at him. Jesus says in John, he says this remarkable statement: "If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father." Do you recognize what he's saying there? If, you see, if you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God himself. Now, we don't have Jesus here physically with us, but we can still see God as we see Jesus in the scriptures. So let me rephrase this question. When we look at the beauty of our state and we are filled with awe, do we get that same kind of awe when we look at the beauty of Jesus in the scriptures? Beholding God face to face with actual eyes is only a blessing for the pure in heart because only the ones that are pure in heart can stand before God and not be crushed. They're they're the only ones who can stand before God without being destroyed. The ones who have been made pure are as pure as God himself. And we find this in 1 John 3. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I know we're running low on time, Matt, um, but if you just want to come up yourself, that's fine too. Um, 1 John 3, 1 through 3, I believe these sets of verses set up this message very well and better than anything I could say. So if you have your Bibles, do flip over there. I want you to see this. Again, I'm not making up scripture here this morning. We are reading out of the Bible, not John's selected readings. Um, 1 John 3 verses 1 through 3 it says this see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are we are right now children of God the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him Beloved, we are God's children now, right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, he's talking about Jesus here, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because why? We shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, meaning Jesus and God, is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we sing this last song, this song talks about, God hears my heart, speak what is true. This morning I pray that this song just wouldn't be something that you sing, but that you actually are giving your heart over to God. And may the truth of Scripture here this morning speak to your heart. May we repent so that we can truly be a blessed people. made pure and clean by the blood of Jesus. As we give our hearts to him so that he causes us to walk out in obedience, to follow his rules because he who promised is faithful. And as he completes that work in us, know, know without a shadow of a doubt that the blessing that is coming to you is that you get to see God. Would you sing